Hello and welcome to another joint discussion between host of the Free Thinker podcast, Tyler Vella. Hello. Myself, host of the Skeptics Testament, Nicholas Joseph Brzezizi. And again, it's a pleasure to have joining us, Brandon Christian. Good day. Which we established is not Kristen, even though he refers to himself occasionally as Kristen. Well remembered. So we can uh, we can uh, continue with uh, this as the next installment of a second of a five-part series, where each of us get to put forward our philosophies and then discuss them. Pretty brave of us, I know, but Tyler will be, be presenting his worldview this episode. Um, as mentioned in the first installment, Tyler is a former atheist, now Christian apologist and philosopher. There is not going to be a better time than now to hand over the show to, to our co-host Tyler, who will begin by discussing the universal presumption of objective morals and values. All right. Um, so the the overall position that I'm going to be presenting to you guys is theistic objective moral realism with a, a little hint of contextualism uh, thrown in the mix to, to just kind of spice things up a little bit. Um, I found that in these discussions, it's going to be helpful um, to talk about what I'm not saying before we get started, because once once these these discussions get really get rolling, I found that it's it's a little bit too late to try to to try to sidetrack some of these um, misconceptions. So the the first misconception that I want to say explicitly right off the front that I'm not saying is that um, in order to be good, it takes some type of religious belief. Um, so a lot of the times when theists and atheists um, get in these discussions, the, the common objection is that, you know, well, theists are saying that atheists can't be good or, you know, there's, a, there's all kinds of ways to be good without, without belief in God um, and, all, and all those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm just saying flat out what I'm not saying um, is that it takes belief in God to be good um, or to understand um, moral goodness or to make um, good moral decisions or, or to perceive a realm of objective morals or anything like that. It doesn't take belief in God um, to, to try to do that. Um, the second thing that I'm, that I'm not trying to say um, is that what we believe now or what even as a, as, a, as a Christian theist, what I believe now is somehow the absolute pinnacle of objective moral values that somehow right now we are as moral as it's ever going to be and we're you know us christians we're always right about what the good thing is and, and or anything like that um that's not what i'm trying to say um it's actually really far from what i'm trying to try to say um in fact it, it's it seems to me entirely possible that our current moral beliefs are as equally errant as any of those from you know 100 years ago where um, slavery or separation was was permissible um, and somewhat ironically it, it seems that in order for us to have real moral progress that we actually do have to have the ability to even critique our current moral statements um, and that to do that we have to have an objective standard um, to which they approximate which I'll get into later basically we're trying to get something right but in doing so, there has to be a process where we can challenge and we can and, and our and our views can be critiqued currently. Um, so to just give a, a little example, this is somewhat comparable to how science advances, right? So we're we most certainly have come to believe certain things about the universe in our own lifetime that is going to be overturned um, later on in the future, right? There's no doubt that there are certain things we believe about the natural world right now that we're going to find is false later on, right? Science doesn't advance. 
um, because it's subjective and we just change our minds, but because there is, there's objectivity in the universe, there's real facts about the universe, and we grow in our knowledge and our perception of it. I actually think there might be sometimes, in some cases, where um, what we used to believe, we then came to believe was false, and in the future we might actually circle back and believe something again. So the, the common example for that is the, you know, the finite beginning of the universe. So whereas um, for a long time throughout the, the church history, they said, well, no, you know, the, the universe was created a certain time ago. Then we had the, the steady state model, which said, no, 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 the universe is actually infinite. Along comes Big Bang cosmology, and we say we, we kind of circle back and we go, no, there seems that there was a finite beginning to our universe. So um, progression doesn't always mean it's always moving forward. Sometimes it does take steps back to go forward. So those are two things that I'm that I'm saying that I'm saying I'm not going to be arguing for. Right, um, the first one that it takes religious belief, and the second one that somehow um, Christians have all the moral, um, all the all morality correct and good. Okay, before you before you then get into the universal presu- presumption of objective moral values and duties, can I ask a question about that? Yeah, sure. This might get us bogged down though, so feel <laughs> free to um, move move me on. But um, I just want to say then, what if if you're not arguing that belief in God is necessary to be good, or you know, a religious view or, or whatever? Doesn't that undermine your position? What I mean, what makes your position superior or even preferred if we can achieve the same, I guess, so-called goodness from another moral system? Right. So we'll we'll get into this. Um, this is basically we made that strong distinction between ontology and epistemology, and I'm saying it doesn't take theistic belief to have moral epistemology. Right. But when it comes down to moral ontology, what are morals? Are there real morals? Are they a really a thing? Or are they just, you know, offshoots of culture, our evolutionary preferences, whatever it is, um, yep. that in order for there to actually be uh, some type of real moral good or um, we're bound by actual duties, um, they're not just societal contracts. Um, uh, we'll get into why I, I don't think that those are, are true ontologies. That, I do think, actually takes um, a theistic universe to exist. You don't have to think the universe is theistic to say, oh, you know, there is this moral fact about the universe. But uh, as many of our, our, our listeners know from, from our different Facebooks page, um, I do think that it takes a theistic universe to ground those. So you might be an atheist who perceives moral facts about the universe, but I think that that's not congruous with your worldview about what the universe is. Right, so people can behave morally even though they don't realize it's grounded in God. That seems to be what you're arguing. Yes, yes, yeah. So it would be a lot like, so um, to to kind of play devil's advocate to my own side, it would be like saying um, if a a Christian wants to say something about the, the natural world, and they want to attribute it to, to God. You know, some, we could look back to, you know, the naturalistic or the normative explanations for, like, thunder being that gods are angry or whatever it is. Um, they, they might be observing uh, a real phenomenon, which is thunder, but they're attributing it to the wrong source. They're str- attributing it to a source that can't justify what thunder actually is. Um, so, so their explanation of what it is doesn't really account for what it actually is. Um, so I would think that with... I think that with naturalism, they can still come to true, um, true moral beliefs. Um, they could perceive real moral facts about the universe, um, but the type of the type of explanations they're going to try to give to it, I don't think um, ground what the actual facts that they perceive are. 
Would you almost categorize that as a, a Gettier-style epistemic problem? Um, are, are you mean like the, the where the the uh, the axiom can't account for itself? Uh, no. Th- there's a man walking through a desert, and he looks ahead and believes honestly believes he sees an oasis, but it's a mirage. However, it does actually just so happen there's an oasis just over the sand dune he's climbing to reach what he sees, which is actually a mirage. So his belief turns out to be true. There is an oasis over there, but the way in which he reached that belief had nothing to do with that belief actually being true. Um, no, because that would, that would be more of like a genetic fallacy, where, um, it, it, where how someone comes to believe something um, actually isn't, isn't um, you know, I might come to believe that the, the Earth orbits the sun through a psychic vision or something like that, right? It's not a reliable means for me to come to a true belief, but I could still come to a true belief. What, what I'm saying um, is that the problem for me is, is really an ontology, not an epistemology. So the, the, the problem, as we'll see, that I think is um, that I so far haven't heard of any um, any plausible account within naturalism of how anything like objective or real moral values and duties um, could have come about. Um, that, that, there, there's, that the worldview itself can account for this, this feature of the reality that we all, um, as I'll argue here in a second, that we all actually do um, presume to be true. Right, and so right off the top we have the um, distinction between moral ontology and moral epistemology. Um, and so I guess that that would nicely lead into the beginning of your first point. Yeah, so, okay, so the first point that I, once we get past what I'm not saying, um, is that I think that there is a universal presumption of objectivity. Um, what that basically means is that I think all people really do assume objectivity either in theory and practice or in practice alone, even if their theory denies it. So um, even those that reject objectivity in theory accept it in practice and that any theory that rejects it is actually unlivable and therefore unacceptable so um so any so someone either says like myself that their their my theory is that it is objective and my practice is that it's objective but there are theories as we'll as we'll get into that say well it's not objective but when you look at how someone, um, when they actually come to practical ethics, um, when they you know, kind of leave the classroom and they're not directly thinking about it, um, they act um, uh, basically what their real presupposition is, which is that people have real moral values, real moral duties. Um, they really have moral indignation when people do something wrong because they think that someone has actually done something wrong or actually had an obligation uh, to do or to abstain from something. Um, so part of this is to think that we we know certain moral facts in the same way that we might know certain mathematical facts, right? So I know that this starts to open the door to a certain kind of moral epistemology, um, but I simply mean that no matter how we come to know that murder is wrong or that two plus two is four, for example, I, I might learn both of those things socially. So how I come to believe that murder is wrong or how I come to believe that two plus two is four, I might have learned um, from my parents or from my grade school classroom. Um, it doesn't mean that either of those in their ontology are a product of how I know them. So um, it, two plus two doesn't equal four because uh, socially, because I came to learn it socially. 
right? That's just how I came to learn it. But it could be a complete fact about nature, right? right. It exists outside of, it exists independent of us knowing it. Right. So even if we can explain how I come to believe it through, say, socialization or evolution or, or anything like that, explaining how I come to believe it naturalistically isn't the same thing as explaining the truth naturalistically. So um, we might be able to explain why I came as a uh, late modern Western um, to believe that um, uh, the, the death penalty is, is immoral, which I do. Um, it doesn't actually mean that the death penalty being immoral just is a function of my social upbringing, right? It can, it can be true or false independent of how I came to believe it. So um, let's imagine that we think that our moral sense is a product of evolution, right? Um, we evolved to have certain desires as a certain society. Um, does that mean that the moral facts that we perceive, perceive by our moral sense are just a product of our evolution? Right. It doesn't seem to me that that's true. It commits, um, as I said, um, what I thought Brandon was getting at, um, it commits the genetic fallacy. Right. It basically says that um, how you came to believe something determines the truth value of what it is that you believe. Um, so, you know, again, we can think of I might believe that the Earth orbits around the sun through a psychic vision. And you might say, well, that's a terrible way to learn things. But it has no bearing whatsoever on the truth value of the statement, the Earth circles the sun. Right, so um, we 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 might be able to come up with these natural explanations of our epistemology, but it doesn't actually um, it doesn't actually affect the truth value, right? And there seem to be moral facts, um, but and, and here I'm responding to um, a, str a strain of objections that I commonly get, and and actually is in like in the philosophical literature, um, there are moral facts, but it's not enough to just call them brute facts, right? Philosophers like um, Weilenberg basically argue that moral facts are what are called brute facts that that is that they they don't need we don't need to account for them or a pri, um, provide any adequate basis for them um, others like Senator Armstrong basically say that moral facts just are right they, they just exist they're just they're just facts in themselves and we have no need to base them on any other realities right they just exist Right, he argues for a non-natural, non-theistic basis for objective morals. He he does argue for it, but he basically says um, he basically says that whether or not we can account for them, they're just brute facts. They just they just are, right? We don't even if I he basically says even if my entire account fails, um, I, that's okay because they're still brute facts. I don't need to come up with an explanation for how they exist. Right. Okay. Um, and, and your contention would be that they do, that you right? So have an explanation for how they exist. Yeah, because to to say that they're just brute facts, there seem to me very few things. I actually have a hard time thinking of any that are just brute facts. Um, and to say that just kind of strikes me as flippant hand waving. Um, and and I'm not even really sure. I'll say this a couple times through this presentation. I'm not even sure what it really means for a moral fact to just be a, a, a brute fact, right? Um, so I, I'm not even sure what it means to say that um, uh, justice just is. Ju justice just exists. Could I interject uh, for a moment with a quick question? Yeah, yeah sure. sure. Um, would you agree that, um, that God, if God exists, God's own existence is a, a would be a brute fact? There'd be no... Yeah. 
well, he exists because of this. He would just exist as a brute fact. No, I'm actually somewhat Leibnizian. Um, I think that something being a necessary a necessary entity is um, an explanation of its existence. Um, so when when you look at Ni uh, Leibniz and he talks about uh, necessity and contingency, um, and he has uh, basically his one of his versions of the Kalam is the argument from contingency. Um, that, it, that seems to me that something being a necessary, a necessarily existing entity, actually is an explanation. I, I don't think an explanation. I, by brute fact, I mean um, it doesn't need an explanation. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it has a. It has to have a foundation somewhere else, right? It just means you, can we explain existence? And I think um, appealing to something as a necessarily existing fact. Um, is different than just saying, well, it's a brute fact, right? And and I'll get into why um, morals aren't aren't necessary aren't necessary entities. Um, okay. They they seem they seem to be contingent. Um, so so for some for for me, I guess the closest thing to a brute fact would be a necessarily existing fact. Um, which that's which what I was going to say. It, but very it kind of seems like the same thing. I mean, I wasn't gonna. You brought it up, so I. But yeah. Yeah, but so. Um, a necessarily existing entity has an explanation, right? We, the explanation is that it's a necessarily there. There's something about its it, part of its essence is that it's necessarily existent, right? Um, that is the explanation for its existence. Um, it doesn't it, again explanation or, or brute fact doesn't mean that it has that it has a cause for its existence. It's, it, mean, it means that we can give an account or an explanation of its existence. Um, and so to say that a moral fact is just a brute fact um, that that it doesn't need an explanation for us to, to know that it exists or, or not to know that it exists it doesn't need an explanation um, whatsoever it, uh, yeah so I'll, I'll get to, I'll get to more of that here in just a second sure um, so like I was saying I I'm not sure I'm not sure what it means to say that a moral fact is a brute fact because I'm not sure what it means to say that justice just exists, right? I, I mean, I know what it means to say that persons or um, or acts are just, for example, or or that um, a belief is just, but I don't I don't know what it means for justice to exist. Uh, so, is I mean, your your struggle with brute facts is it not true that uh, God exists is a brute fact? I don't think that that's a brute fact. Um, I think it's a necessary fact. I don't think it's a brute fact. We, like I said, we can come to an explanation. We can come to an explanation of necessary of necessity, right? Um, we can account for something as a necessity, but a brute fact just says, "Well, we don't need we don't need to give an explanation for it. It just is." That's that's interesting. Um, uh, most theists that I've I've read about do describe God's existence as an ultimately brute fact. Yeah, I would disagree with them. Um, on the level of explanation, I mean, they they argue that they're not two two mutually exclu exclusive things. That he ultimately is a brute fact, but uh, they also maintain at the same time that um, he exists necessarily. Yeah, I think part of that comes from. I mean, without going too much into presuppositionalism, um, part of that comes from I think some of the desire of some Christians um, to say, well, it's it's not our job. Um, to go around proving God, right? That puts us on the on the judge's bench, 
Woodward. That's what William Lane Craig says. So. Yeah. So, um, and, and while I'm a presuppositionalist to some degree, I, I think that that's a little bit of an extreme degree. Um, I think that that it's it's perfectly okay. We're not we're not um, you know exerting any autonomy in saying well um, we we God isn't a brute fact because you know God would be a necessarily existent being and a necessarily existent being it, the necessity accounts for its existence ah necessity and contingency right <laughs> <laughs> they're fun concepts um, yep. so. I think that when we observe certain facts about the world, we're, we're justified in trying to find an adequate basis for those facts, right? Until we show that something is necessarily true, right, which is what I was, which is what I was getting at, or that it's a brute fact, which, like I said, I, I have a hard time even coming up with an example of what would be a brute fact. Um, we, can't, we can't assume that something just is a brute fact especially when it, its very features show that it's actually a contingent fact, right? So if morality is, is personal, that, that is, it's the relationship between persons, um, the rightness of actions between, between persons, then morality seems to be contingent on the existence of persons. Um, so, so like I said, unless we're, we're some kind of Platonist or, or some type of um, atheistic moral realist, um, I'm not sure what it would even mean to say that, that a moral fact is a brute fact. Can I um, just quote something that, um, that our Weilenberg uh, says? I'm not sure if this will add to what you're saying, or, um, because it's, he seems to go off on, I guess, a, a, a slightly different path, but he's trying to give an example of a brute fact. And he says that um, after giving, giving an example of... Um, of torture, right? He says, of the ethical states of affairs that obtain necessarily at least some abrupt facts, that pain is intrinsically bad is not explained in terms of other states of affairs that obtain. And then he says, moreover, at least some necessarily obtaining brute ethical facts are not trivial but substantive. So, yeah, he's he's basically saying so. Um if you've ever listened to um, Senator Armstrong, he, he basically says, um, uh, you know, murder just just is wrong. Mm. Don't you don't you think? Right. Like, <laughs> right, like, right. like to say like to say anything else or try to justify it. You're somehow diminishing um, that murder is wrong. Right. Um, so but I think we can say all kinds of things about why why murder is wrong Um why, why we have moral obligation to not murder, right? I think we can say all, all kind. I, I don't think it just is a brute fact. I think there, there are contributing factors. And I think it's also, I mean, um, the fact that murder actually is an action between two, between two people or two agents, right? Can, can, can murder is wrong exist just independently, just as a brute fact, apart from, apart from any, any person's existing. Uh, that, that's right. what I'm saying. I, I I don't even know what that concept would mean. Right. I'm, well, I'm not sure it's a coherent concept. No, I'm 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 sure that I agree with we, I I agree with you. That's um, why I thought it might add to what you're saying because um, he then just goes on to basically say that it's nonsense to ask where they came from. Yeah. Yeah. They they he says that they came from nowhere. Right. Yeah. That they they, they just exi- they just are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the fundamental the features of the universe. The yeah, only ways out of it that I could see would be either take, a, like Tyler mentioned, a platonic kind of stance where you would simply say that there is a form of even sans instantiations of actors having interpersonal relationships. The form would still hold, and the form of the good there is them like, you know, not murdering each other or whatever. 
Or you could just say that the moment two actors come into existence, it just becomes a brute fact. At from that point onward, it you know almost the beginning of an infinity. From there uh, on, it is a brute fact that it's wrong for them to kill each other. Would be the only two ways that, that I would see someone is trying to state an end to that. Would that be like saying that it's the brute fact that grounds the rest of of the uh, moral truths? For them, but for I, that, I kind of feel like we're drifting a little bit too far away from we probably Tyler's <laughs> actual uh, outline. No, I think I think we actually are kind of hashing out the problem with just saying that it's a brute fact. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think we're all we're all kind of. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're all kind of seeming the, the the massive just conceptual problems with just saying it's a brute fact, right? In the end of the day, we all want to say no. There really is an explanation for these moral facts. Well, I mean, as long um, as if there, is, all, if there is moral fact, <laughs> as long as we're all weighing in on the whole brute fact thing, to to me, even saying that God uh, exists because He's a necessary being, if someone asks asks, you know, well, what of necessity? Why is anything necessary? I really don't think there's anything that can't kind of have a childish but why, but why, but why question that eventually hits up on a brute fact of that's just. That's how it is. It has to be that way. Why? Because it has to be that way. Why? Because yeah, it has. I, I, I guess. I guess to a certain sense, um, the 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 childish question, but why, it is a childish question for a reason. Um, not to sound too uh, too harsh on that one. Um, but I, I I guess we could I um, we could say certain things like uh, tautologies. Um, are ne- I mean, there are all kinds of things that are necessarily true, right? Um, so it's it's necessarily true that a square is not a circle. It's just definitionally true. Um, but um, I think I think I was going for more like a definitional t- definitional tautology. So if you say, um, well, yeah. a, a, a circle isn't a square. Well, why? Because a circle is a circle, right? It, it's it's definitionally distinct from a square. It's it's it, it it cannot at the same time be a square and a circle. There's there's other kinds of tautologies like inferential tautologies which is basically if i say you know why is there milk in the fridge and you say there's milk in the fridge because there's milk in the fridge um it that's actually a logical fallacy because it doesn't explain um itself but there's definitional there's definitional tautologies where basically you know um i could say well you know it, it's it's necessarily true that a bachelor is not married and you could say well why because a bachelor is someone who isn't married right um I don't necessarily know if those are brute facts because I think those are explainable in just what the concept actually is. Um, in the same way that I'm not sure a necessary being is a brute fact. I mean, you could you could go on saying, but why, but why, but why, but why? But at the end of the day, it just comes to down to well, that's what that's that's what a necessary that's what it means. That's what necessity means. Um, I, I really don't feel wouldn't... comfortable building a castle on sand. I mean, if we're Whenever we come to a point where we're just saying, well, look, here we have this conceptual uh, functioning notion, this definition, and to ask why beyond this functioning notion will earn you a demerit or a hand wave, and, and you can't do that. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with, I, I realize that there comes a point where we have to simply say, okay, we're, we're going to work with these definitions and move on. I'm actually comfortable with people operating on tautologies from time to time because I don't really put that much weight or credence in our 
cognitive abilities to get beyond tautologies and cases, especially where we live in a world that we, we have to kind of just roll with the definitions we come up with as we go along. It's just, uh, I don't know if I would label it an austere and august truth. I, I, I guess, I mean, maybe, maybe it is the pragmatics coming out. Um, but I, I think part of me would want to say, well, you know, if I was, if I was telling a child, well, a lamp is not an orange. Um, well, why isn't it a lamp not an orange? Because that's not what a lamp is. It, that, that's cons uh, even even if no such thing as a lamp or an orange exists, those those two concepts are distinct things. Um, yeah, I mean, pragmatically, I, I, we, I agree. I guess I guess I could say uh, maybe this maybe this is a good example of a of a brute fact. It it might be a brute fact that there is a distinction between concepts. Um, it, it might be a brute fact that a lamp, the concept of a lamp, is not the same as the concept of an orange. Um, I, I'm not sure we'd be able to explain that without that kind of appeal to well, that that's just what those concepts are. So maybe maybe that that kind of the the distance between concepts might be brute facts. Um, yeah, I mean, for, from a pragmatist, because I I'm pretty pragmatic in my reasoning. So as a pragmatist, that's why I I'm okay with people adopting tautologies and you know for want of a better term, running with it from yeah. from there on out. I realize that at some point you kind of have to just pick some ground to walk on or you'll just keep sinking. I'm yeah. just saying that uh, – uh, just kind of going on record as saying that I don't really ascribe austere truth to any proposition, really. Uh, I, insofar as they're functional, okay, sure, we'll run with that. I just don't know if it's the sort of ontological soundness – that some philosophers try to make it out to be when they go on to build elaborate fortifications and buttresses and towers on them. Let's let's see if this helps. So, do you, are you aware of the problem of the concept of a heap? Uh, so, so, are you getting you know, when when does a pile become a heap? Become a etc. Yeah, when when does a heap begin? Right when when you're when you're piling up marbles. At what point does it become a heap? Right there, there's ambiguity. Right. So so if I come along and I see there there I can identify when it's not a heap. And I can identify when it is a heap, but I don't. I can't really identify when it becomes not a heap to when it becomes a heap, right? But I can tell. I can tell the difference between the two. There's that. There's that space in between where I can tell the difference between the two, right? So even if even if I can't give even if we can't give you know really really precise um, where where that where that gradation is from from like a definitional tautology to um, to uh, something not being a brute fact, um, I can look at something like say okay it. it I would be comfortable saying it, it is a brute fact that the, the concept of a lamp is not the same as the concept of an orange. Um, but at the same time, I can look at something like the concept of morality and say, well, no, morality seems to be contingent on all kinds of other things. Right? It, it's not just a brute fact. Um, it might be a brute fact that morality is not a shoe, um, but I'm not sure that we can say that, mor that morality just is a brute fact and that it doesn't require any explanation, especially because it seems contingent on so many other things. I mean, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I wouldn't ascribe morality to brute fact status. I was just kind of playing devil's advocate back there. That's that's fine. I'm sure someone was thinking it. Someone somewhere. Are you referring <laughs> to me? I wasn't. Maybe, maybe, maybe Nicholas on the side. Uh huh. Um, yeah, sure you are, Nicholas. <laughs> um, all right. So then we're gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna move into really, really quickly because this is like a. Um, uh, this is a topic that has been under scrutiny. Besides morality, this specific topic has been under scrutiny for a long time, undergone a lot of scholarly tradition, and is not the easiest concept 
um, to understand, let alone navigate. Um, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say, cite it briefly. Try to move on quickly with my dignity, uh, <laughs> um, and recommend that people look look into it. Um, and, and, and why that is relevant. I'm not going to be able to necessarily defend all the presuppositions um, that go behind it, but I'm going to, I am going to say why I think it's an important concept going forward. Um, so the concept is that of natural law. Um, natural law is, um, is ba basically uh, a branch of moral philosophy that says that there is um, a natural, that there is a moral order within nature and that we all know it. Um, we all have more than moral intuition. Um, there, moral intuition is basically the, the, the sense that we use um, to feel morality. Um, a lot of times when we talk about morality, we never really talk about it past the sense of moral intuition. Um, so that's why sometimes these conversations get really bogged down in the subjective because we're really talking about how certain things make us feel. Um, natural law goes farther than that. And the natural law says that we actually have... Um, we actually have something called guilty knowledge. Um, we might have guilty feelings, but there's a there. We have this thing called guilty knowledge as well. Um, so a lot of times when when someone will be talking about morality and they'll say, "Oh, but you know, sociopaths they don't feel guilty. Therefore, you know, not everyone has this moral intuition, right?" Um, natural law theory comes along and says, "No, no, 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 no. Um, for the most part." Um, even sociopaths exhibit what they have as guilty knowledge, right? Um, and they exhibit in a couple different ways. There's there's no sociopaths that really come out and say, um, yeah, murder's great. I I just murdered because I wanted to murder, right? Even the sociopaths, if if you listen to interviews, will say things like, I I don't feel guilty. I but I know I really should feel guilty. Am am I evil because I don't feel guilty? I have heard that. I have heard that. Yes. Yeah. They, I have so, heard that before. So they exhibit but, they exhibit guilty knowledge, or or the, one of the other uh, traits of guilty knowledge is justification. So wait, well, that could that that exhibition of guilty knowledge could just be a result from the the environment that they're placed in, that's right? What I was Remember just now too. Yes, when they when they're doing something like that, what are they normally in? Handcuffs, right? You don't normally see good people who have done something correct or, or right or morally good in handcuffs right in order i think in order to know that you would need an independent sociopath who um who isn't uh i guess exposed to the to the environment a captured sociopath would be and be able to provide him the same questions uh, under the same conditions you'd really almost um, need a sociopath who grew up in a society that yeah. had no pre-existent proclamations on what you should or shouldn't do and then yeah. you catch him and bring him over here. I don't know what kind of weird extradition that would be. But uh, you bring him over here and you say, what do you think about it? And he would just stare at you blankly and ask why you've put him in handcuffs or something. I, it's just pure speculation on that point. But but I, yeah, I, it is, but I still think that you wouldn't be able to say that even sociopaths are able to, to do that because they're contaminated. They're not a good... Um, they, they haven't been placebo-controlled, so to speak. You can't tell what, what is um, affecting their decision-making. You know, is it, it could very well be the handcuffs, you know, have made them feel like they've done something wrong, even though they don't know that what they've done is wrong. No, so, so we can go even further, though. So it's not just that their, their environment makes them think that, right? 
Um, I mean, you have you have um, not to to go too far into into sociopathic behavior, but you you have sociopaths who are actually completely indignant about the about the handcuffs, the cell, all that kind of thing, um, but will still know that they should feel guilty for what they did, but they don't. Um, but you can't tell that. You can't tell that because you can't control for the environment that they're in, right? Yeah, what I, if they, they could have, I mean, if you grow up in America, let's say you, you commit a murder at the age of 25 and you are a sociopath who's just gone that long without uh, violating, you know, uh, that particular moral prescription against committing murder. You've heard and seen in movies and TV shows and from parents and on news programs over and over and over and over and over, the point has been made, don't kill, killing's wrong, don't kill, killing's wrong. Then you get caught, and they put a camera in your face, and you're handcuffed, and they say, what are you thinking right now? And you go, well, okay, right. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I don't feel guilty. I think what NJ and I are getting at is there's no neat and tidy way to say that they're, to use your terminology, guilty knowledge yeah. comes from actual, natural, law-style guilty knowledge or is it just that's what that agent is expressing as a function of being an agent in a society that has trained them to think those sorts of things regardless of their feelings pertaining to those sorts of things? But you have to remember we're going, we're going back to, on the, the presumption. So they're, what, they, what, they're, um, what they're expressing is, is, um, is that they actually did they actually should have known that they did something wrong. Um, they, it, it's not just it. I get. I part of me is already is already thinking in advance of, of subjectivism. That part of them, they're, they're not thinking. Well, um, I, I should societally think this is wrong. Um, they're thinking. Well, no. I, I actually, I actually, I actually should think this is wrong. But all I'm saying is, and I hate to, to repeat myself, you can't know that because they've been contaminated by the environment. You don't know that the environment hasn't been the influence on that, on what they should and shouldn't know. Cannot know that unless you do what Brandon said and, and extradite somebody who who hasn't been exposed and therefore contaminated. Yeah, but then you remember we're still, you're still then going back to the genetic fallacy of saying, well... Let's imagine that they that they came to know that sociologically. But this is a case knowledge? where I don't really think you can ever have a neat and tidy case without dealing with the very real implications of the environment that that person grew up in. I mean, right. I, I understand that we're dealing with some presuppositions that we don't have the time to go into at length, but I right, feel right. that they at least ought to have the bandage removed and exposed as the, the, the bare flesh of presupposition that I think they really are whenever you just say, no, he, he knows because he said it. We have him on film saying, I know I should have done X instead of Y. When, in fact, that's all you have is a man on film saying, I know I should have X instead of Y. What that right. doesn't give you is a window into his soul, so to speak. You, you don't know what he's really thinking you only know apparently what he's really saying, and from there you can work out inferences. And I understand the human need to do that. It's just if we want to try to deal with morality as the product of sterile, pure, crystalline processes of observation and inference, and we know because we know it, it's obviously true, 
we're clearly barred from that level of sterility and that level of um, purely uh, conceivable working components at the point in time where we have to deal with subjects that, as NJ put it, have been contaminated by society at large. And and it's it's not a genetic fallacy because I'm not suggesting that that's the conclusion. What I'm saying is we don't know what the conclusion is, right? Um, we we only know a little bit about the origin of what he's saying, right? right. But we so we can't the- say from there what his uh, natural um, moral law is, right? I, I think I should roll this back. Um, you, I think you guys are still. I think you're thinking of this in. Um, in a different sense. So what I'm talking about is still the the universal presumption of morality. Um, so so when we're talking about people, um, I, I'm here trying more to buttress the example of people saying, oh, well, there isn't this universal presumption of morality, um, of, of objective morality, because there are these people who exhibit basically anti-moral behaviors, right? Um, so I, I'm not actually trying to use this as an example um, that there is objective moral morality. I'm using this example of natural law showing that there is this universal presumption of objective moral values. Okay, so maybe it's just your uh, example that you gave that I I don't think is, is adequate. I don't think you can know that from the example that you gave. Sorry to do this to you. Maybe well, no, you no, 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 no. But, but the point example. is that the, the, the example that I'm giving is, is meant to show that even though... So the appeal that might say, oh, well, there... there there are people that don't feel guilty. There are people that apparently have no moral, no moral code whatsoever. So how can you say that there is this universal presumption of morality, right? Um, so again, I'm not trying to show that they're that I'm not trying to use this as uh, as proof that they that there's some uh, you know tabula rasa uh, 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 type of um, moral beliefs, right? Cause remember, I, I even said, well, it might be it might be understandable that we come to believe things through through social through social conditioning. Right, or through evolution. But what this is here to show is that, well, no, there actually is, even people who we think don't have any moral convictions, any moral beliefs whatsoever, actually exhibit that even though they don't have guilty feelings, they do have guilty knowledge. Right? I still so, say you can't know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to... to uh, maybe I'm being daft, but I still think you cannot know that for the reasons that I gave before. So, so we can't we can't know based on someone's expression what someone what someone's think. I mean, I, I guess I guess I, part of me wants to say, well, if we want to go down that road, then when you say you're an atheist, I can't actually know you're an atheist. Maybe you're a secret. Well, that's atheist, actually true, can, though. I, no, I mean, no, no, I understand. I understand. Yeah. But when we're when we're coming on the level of well, when we're coming on the level of well, we want to have a discussion. I mean, there has to be a certain point where we but say you're, for, but for you're, practical reasons that we're not going to be uh, skeptical to the point where we don't take pe- what people say. Right, but that's not what I think you're saying. What I think you're saying is is that those his expressions exhibit that so he knows that he should feel guilty. So so even, even though he doesn't express, feel guilty. So even people so again I'm trying I'm trying to address the the objection that would come, well there's these people who don't have the, right. the, the presumption of morality. Right? right. Look at these sociopaths. What I'm trying to say is no 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 no. There's more than just guilty feelings, there's more than just moral intuition that we're talking about here. There's a different level that people express uh, um, the universal presumption of, of objective morals, and part of that comes through guilty knowledge. So, again, yeah, but right off sorry, the bat, sorry. I really do think that NJ and I actually have hit upon a crucial problem 
unless it gets clarified later on down the road, I believe we actually have hit upon a crucial problem for the series of presuppositions that go along with the idea of universal um, moral guilty knowledge and how that could possibly be said to relate in any strong way to ontologically existent moral entities. So, I mean, I'm willing to table this right now and just see yeah. where you go with the discussion, but know that one eyebrow is sternly cocked. Um, look, I, I guess I guess from here we, we should probably just move on because we seem to be going around in a circle. Um, and we can let, I mean, obviously this isn't to try to convince each other, right? This right. is uh, for our listeners. And so we can let them decide uh, from here whether or not um, there's a problem with that. And perhaps we can return to something like it or in fact that problem itself uh in the future i would agree with nj i think it's probably best if we back away before we enter into a r-o-t-t-p-o-c-e-s <laughs> oh i was wondering all right <laughs> <laughs> which is a good note to end this episode on you can contact us on the facebook or at my email address, theskeptictestament at gmail.com, with any comments or feedback. And the same can be done at Tyler's blog, logical-theism.blogspot.com. Uh, join us next time for part two of Tyler's introduction. Take care out there.